Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. As we all know, a case built on circumstantial evidence is flimsy at best, but when a case has staggering amounts of it, the courts may take the trial into consideration. But what happens when a vast array of evidence stacked up against someone fails to lead to a conviction based on a technicality? Today, I'll be telling you about the murders of James Campbell, Michelle Charette, Julianne Middleton, Virginia Coote, and Darlene McNeil and the one man who is thought to link them all together. Get ready, because things are about to get shady. Michelle Charette was living alone in Toronto. She was a religious woman described as having some mental competency issues. Michelle was quick to help others and talk to them about religion. She was very passionate about her religion and enjoyed sharing the joy it brought her with others. Towards the end of July in 2000, Michelle met a man and began talking with him about religion and was offering him help. Just shortly after this, Michelle's sister saw Michelle for the last time. For three weeks, Michelle was treated as a missing person, and investigations into her whereabouts were carried out. But those investigations would come to a grinding halt on August 16th of 2000. In an abandoned field just outside of Toronto, the body of a woman was found badly decomposed. The woman was found with no pants or shirt, and she only had a bra on that was unhooked. Her body also showed signs of sexual assault with a foreign object. Police collected the body and began attempts to ID it. Based on dental records, investigators were able to positively identify her as Michelle Charette. Some DNA was collected from the scene, but this provided no links to any person in their database, but it did have a match somewhere else. The DNA collected from Michelle showed a direct connection to another unsolved murder in the Toronto area just four months prior. James Campbell lived in Parkdale, Toronto. He worked as a meat plant worker, and by the year 2000 he had retired from his job and was enjoying his more relaxed lifestyle. James was a 63-year-old gay man living alone in Parkdale. He often frequented a park in Toronto known to be a popular destination for gay men to cruise and take home sexual partners. On April 28th, James was out cruising in the park when he met a 42-year-old man. The two headed back to James's apartment to hook up. When they got there, they began drinking and watching TV and just hanging out. Then, the two ended up having consensual sex, but during this, something went terribly wrong. The next day, police showed up at Campbell's apartment for a welfare check. When they walked in, they found James strangled to death on the floor of his bedroom, with no one else to be seen. Evidence was collected from the scene, but the investigation didn't really seem to go anywhere. That is, until the DNA collected from Michelle's murder connected the two slayings. This made a case that made police wonder if they had a serial killer on their hands. 
investigators were able to find vague connections between the two cases, which pointed them in the direction of a man named Peter Dale MacDonald. In 2001, investigators felt that they may have had sufficient evidence to link MacDonald to the two murders, so they took the case to court. But due to insufficient evidence giving definitive proof that he was the killer, the case was dismissed in 2003. While this was a discouraging blow to investigators, they began to build up a stronger file on MacDonald. MacDonald wasn't a stranger to criminal behavior, and he actually spent more time in prison than out starting from a fairly young age. MacDonald grew up in Summerside, PEI. He lived in a family of six children, and his parents ran a convenience store and a potato warehouse. By all accounts, he had a loving and caring family. While he was young, MacDonald was considered a nice and fun person to be around, not someone that people felt threatened by. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was popular and well-liked in school and in his neighborhood. But, in his early teen years, MacDonald suffered a severe blow to the head, and it was then that people said they started to see drastic changes in his behavior. He began getting more confrontational, and even sometimes violent with others. It was at this time that he dropped out of his junior high and began hanging out with people around the streets of Summerside. MacDonald's departure from school has been described as a case of classroom boredom, but no one thought that there could be some underlying issues that could lead to his long-winded criminal record. Once he had left school, MacDonald was continually apprehended on charges of petty theft and a few assaults. At the age of 18, he was arrested and brought to prison in New Brunswick on charges of theft. He spent two years in that prison. Following serving his sentence, MacDonald headed back to Summerside PEI, where he worked in an auction house. Not long after getting his job, he was fired for improper behavior. Once he was fired from his job, he decided to move up to Charlottetown PEI. It was there that he began to use crack and became a sex worker in the area. After doing this for a short amount of time, MacDonald headed west in search of a larger city to live his life. He first lived in Montreal. There is little known about what he did during his time there. He then moved to Toronto, where he spent a cumulative 11 years in prison throughout him living there. His arrests were mainly for petty theft and generally weren't sentences carrying heavy charges. While in prison, he managed to escape twice. One time he dug a hole under his bunk and left the prison. I wasn't able to find out what he did to escape the second time. While his life showed a good amount about his character, it was the chain of events that seemed to follow him everywhere he went that truly interested investigators. Last episode, I told you about the murder of Byron Carr in 1988. Well, seeing as MacDonald had been a sex worker in Charlottetown and was known to partake in sex with men as well as women, which fits the profile given by investigators of Carr's killer almost perfectly, he quickly became a suspect in this murder. However, investigations into MacDonald's timeline of travel conclusively showed investigators that MacDonald had already reached Montreal by the time Carr had been murdered. But this wasn't the only case that investigators felt could be linked to him, and they were developing a case that almost certainly meant he would never leave prison again. By 2007, the homicide team felt they finally had enough evidence to at least get MacDonald on one of the cases they were looking into, the murder of James Campbell. MacDonald was charged with the first-degree murder of Campbell, but he refused to plead guilty. 
The court offered him a plea deal, where if he confessed, the charges would be brought down to second-degree murder, carrying a sentence of only seven years. It was at this point that MacDonald confessed to the murder of Campbell. In his statement, he said the reason he had killed him was because Campbell had squeezed his testicles while they were having sex. This had led him to fly into a rage and strangle him to death. For this murder, he received his seven-year sentence and was taken to prison. While he was sitting in prison, the investigative team was working on another charge in the case. They intended to retry MacDonald in the murder of Michelle Charette. Leading up to his trial, MacDonald refused to confess. The trial went on for a fair bit of time. During it, the court offered him another plea bargain. This would reduce his sentence from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. MacDonald's defense team advised him against taking the bargain, and so the trials went on. Then, on the last day of trials, MacDonald came out of left field with a full-blown confession in his final statements in the court. This confession only came after him criticizing investigators and the courts for sensationalizing this story and slandering his name. MacDonald claims he did this to put Charette's father at ease, but to me it seems like he was getting convicted on the murder no matter what, and he made the tactical decision to take the seven-year sentence instead of the life sentence. During his court confession, MacDonald said he had strangled Michelle to death. Following this, he placed her body in the random field and in his confession stated that he had used a stick after she had died to make the event look like a sexual assault to hopefully throw investigators off of his trail. Based on these confessions, another seven years was tacked onto his sentence. But that wasn't the end of the investigations into the crimes of MacDonald. Back in 1994, 23-year-old Julianne Middleton was working as a sex worker in the Parkdale area of Toronto. Julianne identified as a lesbian. However, her addiction to crack led her to sex work where she would also have sex with men. On July 7th of 1994, her body was found in Lake Ontario, just a few minutes from Palais Royal at 1601 Lakeshore Boulevard West, along Toronto's western waterfront. The area where Julianne was found was a common area for gay people to hang out, which led the investigators to believe the man who had committed the murder was likely bisexual and was familiar with the area. They believed that this location was intentional. When Julianne was found, she was naked except a bra, and she had signs of strangulation. However, her cause of death was not due to manual strangulation. Julianne had actually drowned to death. It's likely that the perpetrator thought that they had killed her when they strangled her, but she had only actually fallen unconscious, and the perpetrator dumped her body in the lake, and at that point she drowned. Julianne's body showed signs of sexual assault as well. Later in 1994, 33-year-old Virginia Coote was found strangled to death in a Parkdale public swimming pool in Toronto. Virginia also worked as a sex worker in the area and showed signs of sexual assault. Her body was found only wearing a bra. Then, in 1997, a woman named Darlene McNeil was found strangled to death in the Parkdale area. Her body also showed signs of sexual assault and she was wearing nothing but a bra. In all of these cases, the investigators had collected DNA, and each woman had DNA that could be linked to MacDonald. In 2011, the head of Toronto's homicide unit, Mark Saunders, came forward to the press stating that charges were laying upon MacDonald, stating he was the killer of Middleton, Coote, and McNeil. 
Saunders stated that his team worked tirelessly to close these cases and apprehended a serial killer who had been terrorizing the Parkdale area. This announcement was well received by the public and everyone was glad to finally have a conclusion of who had been slaying sex workers in the Parkdale region. But there was one major oversight of the homicide team's charges. Shortly after the charges were laid and brought to court, they were dismissed, stopping the trial in its tracks. The dismissal of this case happened due to the courts declaring there was no prospect of conviction. So at first, I had no clue what this meant, so I looked it up, and for anyone who doesn't know what it is, I'll explain it to you. For a case to reach trial, it needs to be analyzed by a legal counsel to determine if the case meets the criteria to lay formal charges. One of these points of analysis is the test of reasonable prospect of conviction. During this test, the counsel must objectively assess all evidence likely to be available at trial, including any credible evidence that may favor the accused. Reasonable prospect requires that there is more than bare prima facie, which means it requires more than evidence that is capable of making out each of the necessary elements of the alleged defense against the accused. This test takes into account suspect availability, their competence, witness credibility, and their likely impression of the trier of fact, as well as the admissibility of evidence implicating the accused. When this test was done for the trial, there were factors that violated the criteria of reasonable prospect. Since the investigations were considered open cases, the evidence was not admissible, because not all evidence from this case would necessarily be available for these tests. Additionally, the case was deemed to have insufficient evidence to stand trial, which goes against prima facie. The evidence that was primarily relied upon in this case was based on DNA, and the counsel stated that DNA evidence is insufficient when regarding a case involving sex workers. They went on to say that people working in the sex industry come into contact with many people in the run of a day, and the DNA cannot be used to positively link one person to the murder. The other factor that was used in the investigation was the modus operandi of the killer. Each person was strangled to death and showed signs of sexual assault prior to the murder, whereas in the cases McDonald was currently serving a sentence for, the two weren't sexually assaulted prior to their strangulation. Furthermore, strangulation isn't super uncommon as a method of murder, and it's certainly not enough to positively link one person to multiple murders. Based on this case not meeting reasonable prospect of conviction, there were no charges placed against McDonald. The court counsel said that the charges should never have been presented at this time, and that the investigators should have never gone to the press stating that they had caught the killer when the charges hadn't even moved to trial yet. The court then requested that the homicide investigation team went to the press to state that the case was thrown out. But as far as I can tell, this never happened. This short-sighted decision has led to the dismissal of McDonald's case, meaning he is, as far as I can tell, up for parole. Now McDonald is building a case against the Toronto Homicide Department to charge them for libel. McDonald has contacted many news outlets for papers written following the homicide team's announcement of his conviction to substantiate his claims that those words heavily impacted how people viewed him. This case has me incredibly frustrated and concerned that this man may be able to avoid potential charges of suspected murders and may not even go to trial for them. 
At this point in time, it is believed that the Toronto Homicide Department considers the case closed and that no further charges will be pursued. And that's where the case ends as of right now. So that's all I have for you this week. Hopefully this case didn't make you too angry. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shali Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.